All right, Lynn, say it. Say what? Hello and welcome to Planet Money. In Chinese? Yeah. Um, I, I just really don't know how to translate Planet of Money. It sounds evil. What do you mean it sounds evil? Um... Planet money sounds evil? Yes, yes, in Chinese. Like what? Like what? what it indicates e- foreigners with a dollar symbol. Oh, it's like an evil capitalist kind of thing. Yes. That was Lin, our translator in China, and she didn't want to say it, so I will. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today, the second of our podcasts from our trip to China, we look at China's hybrid economy. It seems like an entrepreneurial free-for-all, but pull back the curtain and you find the government everywhere. And we ask the big question, is this hybrid economy genius or is it headed for disaster? First, though, the Planet Money Indicator. Today's Planet Money Indicator, 348,000. 348,000 Americans filed for unemployment for the first time last week. This is the lowest this number has been since the spring of 2008. It's been falling week after week. And David, this is yet another in our string of very promising indicators. And yet, and yet, if you go back a year, you could have given a pretty similar indicator, right? Because the number was looking like it was getting better back then. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it wasn't quite as good as it is now. But yes, this indicator and lots of other indicators at the first part of last year, they were getting better and better. Things felt really good. And then... Well, then all these bad, (laughs) unpredictable things happened. There was a big earthquake in Japan, which at least temporarily disrupted the global supply chains. There was the Arab Spring, which, you know, was good in in many ways, but but it drove up oil prices, which hurt our economy. In Europe, the debt crisis got much worse. That That was more economic trouble. So, you know, we could say now, yeah, if a bunch of bad things around the world happen that harm the U.S. economy, yeah, things could take a turn for the worse. But maybe. Maybe things are getting better. Yeah, I mean, certainly if we just stick with the numbers we got in front of us, they're very promising. All right. On to the podcast. Today, we're going to pull back the curtain on China's economy. Jacob, when we were in China, one day we were just standing on the street corner in Shanghai, and there's this incredible amount of entrepreneurial activity going on. It just felt like everyone was hustling. Hello. 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 This is a guy, he's selling tours, and he has this crazy, like, portable PA system strapped to his head. And, you know, he's, he is hustling, and, and we walk down the street from where this guy was, and you're in the middle of this thriving entrepreneurial economy where there are little shops, guys selling sticky rice and other snacks, guys on the sidewalk selling these crappy cheap toys. There's a big fancy shopping mall with department stores and this kind of Chinese version of Crate and Barrel. So this is the entrepreneurial free-for-all part of China, and it is real, but there's something else going on as well, and it's going on all around you, all the time, in all kinds of mundane ways. So say you live in China, start with your cell phone. Your cell phone network is China Mobile, the biggest cell phone network in China. It is owned by the Chinese government. You get in your car, you need some gas, you start driving down the road, and you see two gas stations on opposite corners. One is PetroChina, the other is Sinopec. PetroChina and Sinopec, the two biggest Chinese oil companies, both owned by the government. Maybe you don't feel like driving. You want to fly instead. You can fly on China Southern Airlines. You can fly on China Eastern Airlines. You can fly on Air China. They're the three biggest airlines in the country, all three owned by the government. Get off the plane, light up a cigarette. 
China National Tobacco Corp., yes, also state-owned. Go home, turn on the TV to watch the evening news. It's here on Channel 16, also Channel 17, also 18. This is CCTV, also owned by the government and obviously not hard to find. Also Channel 22, also Channel 23, and 24, but not on 25. You need some cash, so you want to find an ATM? You got a lot of choices. There's Bank of China, China Construction Bank, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, the Agricultural Bank of China. These are actually the four biggest banks in the country. They have ATMs everywhere. And yes, they are all owned by the government. We should clarify some of these companies are publicly traded, meaning you can buy stock in them, but the majority shareholder is the Chinese government. You know, in the United States, sometimes people complain about businesses being too cozy with the government, about subsidies and lobbying and bailouts. Here in China, a lot of big businesses, they are the government. If you've heard that wonky phrase, state capitalism, this is what that means. And those big state-owned banks that were at the end of that list we just ran through, those in particular play a huge role in the way state capitalism works in China. And really, they are at the center of this debate over whether China's economy is genius or whether it's headed for disaster. So it's, it's worth pausing here to really walk through how those banks work. And those state-owned banks... Ordinary Chinese people put an enormous amount of their money into those banks. China has one of the highest savings rates in the world. One afternoon, Jacob, you and I stood outside a bank in Shanghai, and we asked people, how much do you save? And they all basically said, oh, I'm a terrible saver. People would say, I only put away 30% of what I make. (laughs) 30%. In the United States, the average person saves 4% of their disposable income. And what's more, are these, these regular people in China putting lots of their money into these state-owned banks, they get almost no interest. But people put their money there anyway because in China, there aren't really that many places people can invest their savings. Things like mutual funds and retirement accounts, they aren't widespread there like they are in the United States. So people put lots of money in these simple accounts at these state-owned banks, which means that the banks have huge piles of money, all these people's savings accounts. And what do they do with all that money? Well, they're banks. They lend it out. And often they lend it out to other government-owned companies that go out and build new stuff. China is chock-a-block full with brand new airports, most of which have very few flights every day. And in addition, it's going to build 45 more airports. This is Michael Pettis. For a long time, his job was to size up countries like China. He worked for Credit Suisse First Boston and Bear Stearns. Today, he teaches finance at Peking University and writes a well-regarded newsletter. Most of my students can't even name the cities that don't have airports. Everybody has an airport, and we're building more. Uh, That sounds like a good thing. An airport is always a good thing, but it's not. If those airports aren't being used, then the economic value of those airports are very, very low, but the cost continues to be very high. So remember that debate we've been talking about, whether China's economic model is genius or headed for disaster? Pettis is clearly in the headed for disaster camp. He says if you dig into the numbers, a big chunk of China's growth comes from building things, from building expensive things that China may not really need. Airports are one example. Also, bullet trains, roads, desalinization plants, power plants. Local governments are building all kinds of stuff. And if that stuff doesn't get used, remember, all these things are built with money borrowed from state-owned banks. If those airports, for instance, stay empty, that's a real problem. They borrowed money, and how do they pay it back? They can't pay it back. 
And remember, that's ordinary people's money that the state-owned banks are lending out. And not only, Michael Pettis says, is it being loaned out for questionable projects, it's being loaned out at ridiculously low interest rates. The railway ministry, for instance, it can borrow from state-owned banks at a rate so low that when you take inflation into account, the interest rate on the loan is actually negative. So imagine borrowing $100 and instead of paying back more, like with an ordinary loan, you effectively pay back less, the equivalent of $97. The borrowing costs may have been negative 3% every year for the past decade. So basically, state-owned enterprises can borrow for less than inflation at a rate of interest that is lower than the inflation Yes, rate. exactly right. That's a great deal. It's a great deal. Um, and it means that you can generate a huge amount of e- economic activity, but you can also generate huge losses and not know it. Is there a rough analogy here to what was going on in the U.S. during the housing boom where there was essentially an illusion that everyone was getting richer? And in fact, we weren't getting richer in real terms. We were just borrowing the money to feel like we were getting richer. And ultimately, there was a reckoning. Sure. That's exactly what's happening. Um, It's an overinvestment problem. And an overinvestment problem always makes you feel richer in the beginning. And then later on, you have to count all of that back, give, give all of that fake wealth back. Pettis says in his days working in finance, he saw this model of growth a lot. The government takes money from the people and builds things with it. That means hiring people to build roads and factories and trains and airports. All that counts as GDP. It counts as economic growth. And for a while, it feels great. It looks great. Your country's economy is growing at this incredible rate. But in every single case, it ended up with excessive debt. Uh, in some cases, a debt crisis. In other cases, a lost decade of very, very slow growth and rapidly rising debt. And you worried that's where China is headed, where all those countries headed, to, to a lost decade or worse? Yeah, if it isn't, then it's really, uh, it's really an extraordinary case. It's something totally unprecedented. We've never seen this kind of growth model not, not result in a debt problem. And no one has taken it to the extremes that China has. This last thing Pettis says, this idea about the extremes China has taken this to, this is very easy to see when you drive around China. The amount of infrastructure they're building is amazing. There's brand new highways that are perfectly smooth, new bridges, new big train stations. And just construction, construction, construction. I've never seen so many cranes. You see these clusters of what look like Florida condos going up in the middle of nowhere. We were driving around, and we pulled over to check one out. It was surrounded by farmland. And Lynn, our translator, rolls down the window. There are some workers there, and she says, where are we? And they sort of look perplexed, like, like they don't know a name for the place. They say, you're here. So we got out. So wait, can we try and count up how many apartments are here? Yeah, let's just count like that. <laughs> it's like infinite in every direction, it's so it's hard. stories, right? Although I don't know if there's apartments on the ground floor. One, two, three, four... It's six stories, and like you just count the buildings. Seems like a rough. Ap- Hi, Nihao. You guys give me an awesome look. This complex looks like it has 20 buildings, maybe 500 apartments total. None of them seem to be occupied. And there was another identical complex going up next to it, covered in scaffolding. And you can multiply this, what you see here, by everywhere in China. When we were taking one train ride, I was looking out the window and I thought, oh, there's one of those high rises. Maybe we can see that. Oh, there's another. Oh, another. They're just everywhere. All of this infrastructure, all of this building, it's happening because the government controls huge sections of the economy. And this 
huge amount of government control. It's worrying to to one economist we talked to in Beijing. His name's Zhang Weiying, and and he told us that last fall he was participating in a panel discussion at this public event, sitting right next to some high-ranking government official. And Zhang Weiying, he just came right out and said it. I said it's a bunch of smart people, really smart people, doing something really stupid. A bunch of smart people doing something really stupid. You said that. Yes, I said that. The official, he said, just smiled. And the official has reason to smile. I mean, so far, state capitalism has been working well for China. That is the argument made by the other side of this debate, the everything is going to be fine side. For more on the everything is going to be fine side, we're going to go talk to Arthur Krober. He runs a research firm in Beijing called Dragonomics. He's sort of the sunshine to Michael Pettis's reign. And Krober says, yeah, China's economy looks weird to Western eyes, but it works. I mean, it always looks strange, and I'm sort of perpetually astonished. Astonished by the fact that things work as well as they do here. It seems like things should not work. It should just be a, a total chaotic mess. But, in fact... You know, the track record is is pretty excellent. Krober says this economy is sort of startling to look at. All the cranes, the construction with borrowed money. But this is what it looks like when you are in a country of over a billion people that is growing faster than just about any country in history. And yes, China's government is building a lot. And Krober says that's been the case for a long time. When he first came to Beijing back in 1985, he was shocked. Beijing has these these ring roads, what we'd call beltways in the U.S., basically freeways that run in a circle around the city center. And when Krober got here in 85, China had just finished building one, and it was empty, so empty that he and his wife rode their bicycles in the middle of the highway. Not in the bicycle lane, but in the main part, because there were no cars. So I remember thinking, that time, this is kind of crazy. Why do they have this enormous road with nothing on it? And why are they building this third ring road, given that they have a second ring road with nobody on it? Even crazier at the time, the government was working on another ring road. And since then, it's completed three more ring roads, each further and further out. Today, they are not empty. They are filled with cars. Full of traffic all day long, which it's kind of an emblem of the way things get done here, which is that they tend to build the infrastructure before it's really needed. But then it gets absorbed pretty quickly. So at any point in the last 25 years, you could walk around and say, they're building all this stuff, and who will ever possibly use it? And you come back five years later, and it's not nearly enough. And that, that logic, I think, will eventually come to an end, but it has, it has worked pretty well for them up to now. All those new high-rises, like the ones we saw by the side of the road— One day, Krober says, people will probably live in them. There are still hundreds of millions of people living in very rural, very poor areas in China. And if the economy keeps growing, they're going to want to move into new apartments. And I kept thinking while we were there, you know, this is not like the United States. They don't have cities like, I don't know, Buffalo or Cleveland that could absorb more residents. The cities for these people to move to do not exist. The power plants to bring these people electricity don't exist. The roads to get to these cities that don't exist, they don't exist either. All that's got to be built. And though you may read stories about high-end housing bubbles in Beijing or Shanghai, Krober says if you look at the country as a whole, China could be facing a housing shortage. You basically come to the conclusion that for the next 20 years, every single year, China will have to build 10 million units of housing every year for 20 years, simply to soak up all of this demand. 
10 million units of housing sounds like a lot, but remember, China has 1.3 billion people, and there's this endless, massive migration of people from the country to the cities. So this broader debate we've been talking about, basically whether China's economic model is going to end in disaster or whether China's economic model is genius, this debate has been going on in China for a while now. And just in the past few years, the China's economic model is genius side of the debate got a big boost thanks to the financial crisis. We talked with an economist named Huang Gang in Beijing who works closely with the government. He pointed out that China's state-controlled economy, it did just fine in the financial crisis. While the free market banks, the rest of the world, they almost self-destructed. At some point, though, China's economy is going to have to change. You can't keep building new airports forever. At some point, economic growth in China is going to have to come less from building new things and more from regular people buying stuff. Michael Pettis, the guy who worries everything might end in disaster, and Arthur Krober, who thinks everything is going to be okay, and even the Chinese government itself, they actually all agree on this. They all say that the economic machine that has helped drive China's growth, it needs to change. What they disagree on is how much time China has to make the change. Krober says China's got another 10 or 15 years. Pettis thinks it may already be too late. This shift China needs to make and how its economy runs, it is not going to be easy. It is a hard turn to make. And we're going to talk about that in our next China podcast. As always, let us know what you think. You can visit us on the blog at npr.org slash money. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook and on Spotify. One final note, Michael Pettis, the guy who worries about China's economy, he also runs an independent record label. This is one of the band's Carsick Cars. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening.